0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Walker webcast. It is my great pleasure to have my friend, an incredibly insightful CEO, podcaster, author,
0: and... Skier. What's that, Bob? Skier. Is that what you just talked about? And skier.
1: Bob Glazer on. Uh, Let me do a quick intro of Bob, and then we're going to dive into a lot of different things, but mostly around his new book, which hit bookshelves today and uh, is running right to the top of the charts as it relates to business books, and I can't endorse it more. But let me do the quick bio, and then we'll get into the book. So Bob Glazer is the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners, a global partner marketing agency, and the recipient of numerous industry and company culture awards, including Glassdoor's Employees Choice Award two years in a row. He is the author of the inspirational newsletter, Friday Forward, and the author of the international best-selling book, Performance Partnerships and Elevate. His newest book, Elevate Your Team, has just been published, and will be the focus of our discussion today. Outside of work, Bob can likely be found skiing, cycling, reading, traveling, and spending quality time with his family, or overseeing some sort of home renovation project. Bob, first of all, it's wonderful to have you with me today. Let's start here to give our listeners a context of what Acceleration Partners does Explain affiliate marketing and how that creates partnerships between merchants, affiliate networks, publishers, and the consumer.
0: Yeah, just using those words shows that you understand more than 90% of people. So, affiliates falling under this larger umbrella of partner marketing rather than buying an impression or a click, it's a digital form of marketing whereby you can sign up a lot of partners who write, talk about your product service otherwise, you use technology to track how that does, and then they are only paid on a performance basis. So we, we help set up and, and manage those programs for pretty large global companies who like the notion of paying for their marketing after they <laughs> get the result that they wanted.
1: When you open the book, Elevate Your Team, you use some data points about how rapidly you've scaled Acceleration Partners, which actually plays into one of the reasons why you actually wrote the book. So give our listeners a little bit as it relates to the scale you've achieved and how quickly you've grown Acceleration Partners.
0: Yeah. And the one change to my bio, which if you read the book, you have, I fired myself as CEO. So I'm now the, the founder and chairman, which is a better fit for me. We grew, I think, at sort of the height almost about thirty percent for a decade. We've grown now at almost three hundred and fifty people globally, probably five, six years ago. That was around a hundred. And while we have an investment partner in the last year or two, most of that growth was all kind of self-funded. So I think we were sort of on the... And it's interesting where the world's come today. We were on this kind of growth path of kind of growing and growing with our team and doing that on a sort of self-generated basis. And as I was watching a lot of the kind of grow at all costs types of business going on the sideline, I think, interestingly, in timing better to be lucky than smart sometimes. But I, I started working on this book a few years ago and now we have a marketplace where growth is almost like a bad word because I think it has been associated with, you have people that are tired and burnt out and things are just been hard and they don't really want to grow. But I think organizations need to grow. I just think we're moving away from this. Hey, let's grow the business at all costs, no matter what the cost or expense is to our people. To how do we kind of grow a business that people are excited by the growth and part of that growth? So in
1: Elevate, your past book, it was really kind of focused on individuals. And this, the new book is on teams. So what was it, Bob, that got you? What was the, you called it an idiot (laughs) genius Genius. epiphany that got you to sort of take everything that you'd put into Elevate, which really focuses on individuals building spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional capacity. What was it that? Said to you, I need to take these lessons about individuals and translate them into how you scale an enterprise and how you build highly effective teams.
0: Yeah, as you said, my little epiphany was I didn't realize the solution to my problem was something I had already kind of figured out. Yeah, that framework, which a lot of people really embraced after Elevate, and I think they've used it as a personal and and with their own team as a leadership development framework on how to get better. I started to realize that was kind of the trick to growing the organization. We need to figure out how to make people better holistically and rather than one by one, how do we put some of those things institutionally into the culture and and the organization? And and I realized it was actually the same framework and that's sort of what we had been doing and how we had been training people. And I just hadn't called it that and hadn't organized it that way. And once I kind of saw it in that same way, it was easier to double down and say, Well, here we're working on spiritual capacity, and this is intellectual capacity. When we're doing podcast clubs and book clubs and learning and feedback exercises, and we've done a lot of things around psychological safety, which is the big focus of emotional capacity in this book. Right? How do you? So, there's a good example of I emotional capacity is kind of the individual version. Was how do you focus on what you control and your relationships and otherwise? And the institutional thing is how do you get the organization to be a place that's psychologically safe, where people can speak up, where they can share ideas, where they can say this isn't going to work. And also one that focuses on the things that it controls and not the things that it doesn't control. I think the hallmark of a low emotional capacity organization is one that I would say in sales teams, they never lost a deal that they were culpable for. You know, It was the competitor's fault or the client's fault or this third-party thing. Like, They're just going to go in and make the same mistake next time.
1: What you just said reminds me, I was <laughs> I was on a
0: client call, Zoom
1: call, week before last, and the CEO of the company said, I listen to every Walker webcast that's focused on economics. I love the Walker webcast, but I don't listen to the ones where you focus on soft stuff. And, you know, I obviously didn't argue with him and say, you should be listening to the soft stuff because- See if he just I, hung I up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right, exactly. He might be actually listening to this one and he just clicked me off. But, you know, I mean, one of the things you say at the beginning of your book is, build your business by building your people. And I think a lot of CEOs and and business leaders sort of forget about how important that is. And particularly right now, you you just referenced it at the beginning here. We're, We're sort of in this distinct economic cycle. A lot of the big fast growth technology firms are laying people off right now. How at these stressed times do leaders and CEOs and business heads, Stay focused on, if you will, the long ball as it relates to people development, and not just focused on where's that next sale
0: coming from. I do think it's better for their business overall. And look, we had Elon Musk a few months ago say, "Hey, if you're going to work at Twitter, you're going to work super intense and hard, and great. And then a quarter of the company quit the next day, right? Or whatever, whatever it was. So that that sort of playbook just hit like a, a ton of bricks. So I. You can play the game to win this week, or you can try to play the long run. And I think, again, in the long run, we have a lot of people playing defense right now, whether it's in my industry or your industry or otherwise. Eventually, they're going to get back to playing offense. And some of the things that I think the practices we've had – induced by cheap money, weren't sustainable. So I think these are more sustainable practices and you want people in your organization that are excited to be there, are leading, are growing, or want to take the next role. And like I said, growing because you're helping to grow the people, not, you know, if you imagine a wave, I think we've either had, you're surfing the wave or you're being crushed by the wave, right? That's sort of the two analogies. So in the book, you outline a top
1: performer, which is, I read through your characteristics of a top performer understanding their strengths and weaknesses, their voracious learner, good physical and mental discipline, they connect well with others, hit kind of, if you will, the checklist as it relates to a number of top performers that I've both worked with inside of my own company, as well as at other companies. But you're very quick to point out that not all top performers can actually continue to grow in their roles and scale with a company. Describe that and and what we as leaders ought to be looking for, not just in top performers, but people who can actually scale with your company.
0: Yeah. I think the first key is to look for experience is great and experience plus aptitude would be great. But I think aptitude is what makes people get better and ready for the next role and the next thing. Do they have the ability to improve? And I talk in the book about sort of there's a chart that comes out of that shower epiphany and whether it's a team or an organization, you have a growth rate, right? So imagine there's people that come in and then there's the role and sort of time and their ability to do it. Well, if the growth rate is, let's say it's like a 45% slope, there will be people that'll fall all along that plot line. They're growing faster than the growth rate. Those are sort of unicorns. You get one or two of those, keep them, (laughs) throw stock at them. You You need a president and they're ready to be CEO. You need a director and they're ready to be managing director. So I talk about the A player as someone who's just stays on that growth line. So they're ready to keep taking that next leading role in the team or the organization. Most people fall below that line, what I call the capacity building zone, because if the growth of the team is 30 or 40%, a lot of people can't get 30 or 40% better a year, nor should we expect them to. They might get 20% better a year. And then there's a couple of things that happen. If you focus on building the people and getting them better, you come to two logical problems sometimes. One, it's just not enough. You know, your business has now gone global and you need a you have a really good VP of finance, but you need a global CFO with experience in that. And if you promote that really capable VP of finance into this role with none of the criteria that will make them successful in the role, you're gonna have a problem. Or similarly, you've coached this person up and they are extraordinary and you have no place for them to go. (laughs) Or you're not willing to displace the old stodgy CFO with the better kind of rising VP of finance. So Look, this is where managers and leaders earn their stripes and make those decisions where you know they're going to open up the space for talent on the team, or they're going to say to someone, look, you're a great manager, but you've been doing everything you can do to be a better manager, but we need a director right now. And that's a different capability set. But at least you'll be in the position to have more people likely to you know to have a shot at it.
1: You have an axiom that you say every time you double a company's size, you break 50% of your processes and 50% <laughs> of your people. I read that, Bob, and I sort of said, we've grown Walker & Dunlop a lot faster than, you know, we've done 50% on W&D for a very long period of time, and I still have a huge number of the original management team and professionals at W&D over that period of time, and I sat there and reflected upon both the growth that they've done as individuals and that we've done as a team do you really think that there's kind of a 50 percent change in your processes and your people as you scale the company and double the size of it
0: yeah look I, that was was told to us and i didn't i thought we were doing better than i didn't want to be that but i my guess is that that is the average because If your company is growing at that rate and your people aren't growing and they don't have the tools and they don't adapt, then those things will break. So it doesn't surprise me that you've done better than the average. My guess is those people have improved at leaps and bounds. They've been willing to make changes. They've been willing to change processes and and do those things. And so it doesn't look like a break because you have growth and and adaptation. But I don't know that that's the average. I think if you looked at the the sort of Silicon Valley venture-backed version of it, I think you'd be probably very close to that 50% rule.
1: So on capacity building and teamwork, you state that we need to really invest corporate time and resources in capacity building. And As you dive into the various component parts of spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional, you lay out some of the things that you've done at Acceleration to both create the time and invest in building a a spiritual framework, if you will, building personal spirituality, as well as on a corporate level. Can you just talk about, for instance, that exercise that you took your team through as it relates to the three questions to help build a broader spiritual network?
0: Yeah. And and just to be clear, for some people who may may be cringing a little bit, the notion of spiritual, this is not religious. To me, this is, for a lot of people, what are your core values? What is most important to you? What are your strengths? What do you do well? You know, this is a lot of the personality tests that people do and otherwise to then figure out, like, what should Willie be doing and what should Willie not be doing and then being able to share that. When you think about Jim Collins' definition of kind of a level five leader or transcendent leader, that has to be someone who is leading authentically, and that has to come from a place of self-understanding. And if you have leaders that aren't clear about what they're good at or what their value, I find that their leadership style is a lot of best practices that are cobbled together, but they're not authentically them versus a leader who says, look, this is what I do well. This is what I not do well. This is what you should love to be in my team. This is why you'll hate being on my team. And by the way, they're the same reason. And i've just seen people have some real epiphanies about why they do what they do people i've seen with a core value of trust which often comes from a real violation of trust somewhere in their life when we get into it with their team if people were five minutes late if they missed an assignment if they called them and couldn't find them in the afternoon they just threw them in a penalty box like this is core signals to this person that this is someone that cannot be trusted once they actually understood that they were able to go to their team and say hey trust is really important to me and on my team and I'm going to trust you, but here are the ways that trust can be lost. And they were able to like really kind of have honest discussion and help their team understand what was important to them and what was not important to them. A lot of this stuff is, and a lot of core value stuff is deeply baked in. It it comes from childhood. It comes from things we have been spending our whole life trying to double down on or avoid. And so it's not a surprise that it shows up in our leadership. And I actually think it's an asset but it's an asset if we understand it and we know it and it's driving us, not if it's driving us and we have no idea who's behind the wheel of the car.
1: Well, as you talk about that, Bob, in the book and one's core values, one of the questions you asked your team was what would you like to be said about you in your eulogy, which reminded me of David Brooks's both great op-ed yeah. in the New York times. And then he also wrote a book on it. How do you live your eulogy? How do you, if you all foster an environment inside of Acceleration Partners that allows people to live to their eulogy and, if you will, not their W-2?
0: Yeah. So look, for better or for worse, my dominant core value is to find a better way to share it. My... Purpose is to share ideas that help people in organizations grow. So, like, those are the two reasons why I'm here today, right? Is there something that we've learned or otherwise that can help people do that? That's what I do well in my organization. I'm not the consistent processy <laughs> person. You know, I'm not the keep things safe and keep us out of trouble. I need to be paired with the keep us safe and keep us out of trouble because I'm the experiment, new idea, try, see how we can make it better person. And so those are the situations that I should be brought into to solve. And I should be removed from the situations where that would be a liability to the area. So again, just even that clarity and people on my team will use that words or my wife will use that words. Like they'll say sometimes, hey, look, whatever we're dealing with right now, we just don't need you to make it better. Like please don't. <laughs> and that knowledge is it's helpful. Or they'll say, look, you've given us seven things to make better. Nothing's going to get better. Like which two do you want? So the more that people understand the people they work with, I think on that level, you can have those kinds of conversations and you can get to those trade-offs and better outcomes. Help me understand then, Bob, what happens if your core values don't match up with the rest of your teams? That's a really good question. I get asked that a lot. And look, presumably, if organizations do this right, if you have real organizational core values and you recruit for them and you reward and hire and fire based on them, then you should probably attract people who have Similar values. Now, people's values don't always align. If you find that the values of the organization are not aligned with your own values, it's probably just not going to work, or the organization finds that. For instance, like some of our value is we're a fast paced agency. Like we need people that own it, that want to make decisions, that want to drive that. If someone likes slope, pace, and consensus decision making, and like they might be better working in a nuclear power plant than a marketing agency, that's not a bad thing. It just may not be how we work. So you don't have to be in total alignment, but there should be a lot of dots. If you're working with someone on their team or on a boss and you have two or three conflicting core values, that's going to be pretty hard. It starts the core value exercise in the book, but I talk about the big three a lot in terms of core values, where I think your vocation or the company you choose, your partner or your community, like when those things that you choose to live in aren't value aligned, they don't tend to work very well. So. Look, sometimes I would say, like, I think Acceleration Partners is a great place to work. I think it's a great place to work for about 2% of the population. We have a certain value set, we have a certain way that we work. We were client service. A lot of people don't like that. There's running backs who need to go to a team that runs the ball. There's quarterbacks that throw the ball that need to go to a team. There's universities that appeal to totally different types of students that are great universities, but one's a huge inner city campus one, and one's a rural, you know, smaller liberal arts. So I I think we're all trying to find places that match up and there's some shared values.
1: So when I hear you talk about that, which makes perfect sense, I wonder whether there's a trade-off from a diversity of opinions and ideas. So I had Frances Fry from Harvard Business School on last week, and Frances and I dove into this issue a bunch. She talked a lot about both swapping the d e and i and putting i first so if you want to create an inclusive company you need to really focus on being an inclusive company before you focus on being a diverse company because if you're inclusive then the diversity will come but if you just focus on the diversity it's very hard to build the inclusion after it yeah yeah, yeah. she was sort of like swap those two and then she also went at some length talking about how really great companies have a diversity of opinions experiences and ideas that all come together into this melting pot that create breakthrough and innovation and you you touched on it a little bit there bob as it relates to people who are kind of put outside of their comfort zone and those are the ones who are the most creative they're the ones who can come into a situation glean from the situations i mean they've never seen before and create something new so i know you understand this what i want to understand is that trade-off of you want the sort of core culture and values to match up, and yet at the same time, we all know that diversity pays and rewards.
0: Yeah. So, how do you play those two off? I think both things are true. When I say it, there needs to be some alignment, it doesn't even a person match. You know, people talk about the culture fit, and there's been a lot of thing about the verbiage versus culture ad. I think sometimes people are again, this has been sort of Silicon Valley thing that a culture fit is a carbon copy, and everyone thinks and looks the same. That is not what you want at all. I think you. 100% want diversity of opinion perspective and otherwise but the core of any organization or purposeful organization is some shared mission or vision or some strings of commonality that bring you there for instance like if i'm pretend i'm very religious i might have atheists that are my friends but if i have a religion club on sunday morning like i probably don't want the atheists coming and telling us all morning that everything that we're doing is wrong like in, in that context That's not the purpose of that organization. That doesn't mean that someone not be friends with. So I think at any organization, you have to have some shared values, but 100%, that does not mean that people are all the same or they think the same, but they're just, they're rallying around both the vision of the organization and some shared rules. And I think this is true for sports teams and religion and organizations or otherwise that work and then endure. They have some shared purposes that, or some values that they kind of hold true. But I agree with Fran. And I think within that, you want all types of different people and perspective and opinions.
1: So there are some assessment tools that you've used inside of Acceleration Partners that you mentioned in the book that allow companies to sort of understand people's core competencies and who's good and how their personality types play you're not big on myers-briggs and the enneagram because you say they're a little bit too complex for the corporate environment talk about some of those tools and how you've used them you've used one at a corporate retreat you had everyone in the entire company take the test at the actual corporate retreat talk about how you've used those acceleration partners to both give people an understanding of who's on their team and then also to be able to pull the team together rather than push it apart
0: yeah. And let me just, cause I know people are very, the people love Enneagram. And so I always say this as a disclaimer, like I know a lot of people are deep on it. I think if you do it, you have to do it holistically and consistently. The problem with something like Enneagram in my mind is that the answer is like, Willie, you're a, a six wing four, you know, or whatever it is. And I might walk in and be like, I have no idea what that means. Right. And so I have to be caught up to speed on all of that and do that. So if you're rolling that out as an organization and some organizations do, it works. You just have to be kind of all in on it. That's my experience on that one. Versus if you do strength finders or something like that, and I tell you that I'm I'm a relator, I'm a strat, like you'll inherently know what those things mean without a lot of training on it. So yeah, we've done the why stuff, which is super impactful, disc, otherwise. And I think you start to see a lot of commonalities when you do these around what you do well, what you don't do well. I'm someone who believes we're not focused on our weaknesses. I think you need to be aware of and understand your weaknesses and mitigate them, but you shouldn't focus on them. You should focus on the things you do well. And I think it's interesting. I remember we did the strength finder exercise with a team. And then the facilitator would say, All right, now that you learned all the people on the team, if I had this project, who would you assign to do the research? Who would you assign to do the execution? Who would you design? And it just became really clear like whose skill sets were aligned around certain things. On the disk, it's always interesting too. You know, we have a very D-heavy. Team, you know, the S people are the ones that at some point like keep you out of trouble. They'll slow you down on a lot of things and particularly with a group of Ds, but then one time out of 10, they're really going to cause you from making a mistake. So, one of the things I did say in the book is you should, and to the diversity point before, you should absolutely not use any of these things for interviewing. There is no right or wrong in any of these things. And in fact, I've seen people without the knowledge, just hire teams of people who (laughs) fall into the same assessments as them without even knowing it because they look for similar things. Again, there's not a good one. There's not a bad one. I think it's just a matter for everyone to understand. How do I come to something? What is my orientation? What are the strengths I've been? How does someone else do and get people focused in the right place, right projects? And, you know, for some people, we talked about this. It's not in the book. It's not leading they have all the traits of an individual contributor who wants to be really rewarded for their direct contribution. And they thought to make more money and get more responsibility, they need to take a leadership role. And that ends up being a lose-lose because it diminishes their production and people have a leader that has no interest in leading.
1: So you briefly mentioned right there, Bob, that you're not a big fan of psychological tests in the recruiting process. Talk about that for a moment because we've used them Ourselves, we have a number of clients who who literally say, I'll never hire someone who doesn't pass this test that this firm that we outsource to does all this psychological profiling, it comes back, and if they don't score high on that exam, I don't hire them, and anytime I've gone against that exam, it's been a big mistake, and you don't buy into that.
0: Well, actually, they're ones that are designed for hiring. Like I know people use predictive index, they use culture index. I've heard people with a lot of success like that. That I'm not saying I might not buy into, and and I think what they try to do is assess. If you're worried about diversity, though, they're trying to assess the pattern of the organization to hire for the pattern of the organization. And so I know a lot of people who swear by these things. I am saying some of these other sort of personality tendency ones that weren't meant for hiring, I wouldn't use for hiring. I wouldn't try to say, oh, we're looking for this type. Because again, that assumes that one of them is is better than the other. Like That assumes that certain profiles are better when I think actually teams where everyone is on the same part of the profile tend to have the same strengths and weaknesses. But I do know there are assessments or people have designed them for hiring that are specifically for hiring. I don't have a strong opinion on that. I'd be curious on people who understand the dei component more who have done the research on that it finds that that does tend to lead to more homogeneity i i don't know to be (laughs) fair on that
1: so the final one on spirituality talk about finding why
0: yeah so uh simon sinek wrote this great book about finding your why and it was a huge bestseller the first one and then it was kind of like hey Go figure it out. And turns out that's really hard to do. I've come on the work of a gentleman named Gary Sanchez, who then kind of really got into that and interviewed hundreds of people and figured out their why, and then found these kind of seven, eight, or maybe it's nine archetypes. We've done this in an organization. This is sort of what is your driving purpose, both inside and outside work. And I have found it to be one of the highest core, It, it typically ties to one or more people's core values, but it just when you get into conflict and stuff and you tell me two people's whys, I can tell you exactly what the conflict is. Like all of our leadership team knows these things. We reference it a lot. I've just found it to be one of the most reliable predictors of the orientation people come at thing and why they do what they do. And I just I found these archetypes super powerful. We did it seven or eight years ago, and it's still one of the things that we use and talk about daily so the next
1: sort of area is intellectual. And the need for people to, we talk at Walker Nelop about learning and earning and being able to do those two things inside of the company is a great way to build a career. You reference a LinkedIn survey to Gen Zers and millennials that said that 94% of respondents said that they'd stay in a job longer if they had something given the chance to learn more. How important is this Learning not just inside the office, but outside of the office, and having a company give you the ability to do both.
0: Yeah, I think the great people want to learn and get better. And we have an incredibly fluid job market today, right? Location is not an issue anymore. You can find people, visibility. If you don't have a compelling reason why they can grow your career, if it's just a job or just a function, people can be a consultant. They can go into the gig economy. I think there's a higher threshold of saying, what do you get from being part of this team rather than doing work with that? And so if you don't have people that want to learn on your team, you got one problem. If you have people that want to learn on your team and you are not giving them opportunities inside and outside, you have another one. And I wouldn't restrict those things. Right? We had someone on our team taking advanced Spanish lessons. You know, Spanish, they're really Passionate about. Well, you know what? We have a lot of clients that are operating in Latin America and elsewhere. And like, that's a skill that we're going to need someone who knows how to do affiliate and handle the lang- language component. I just think that there's a book, great book you probably read knowing you called Range, that was written a few years ago, David Epstein, I believe. And he kind of said, like, the more you know from different areas and learn, and the more you bring those things in cross pollinization is where a lot of innovation and new things come from, and that you're actually better off being a a Renaissance person than a super specialist in some cases.
1: So talk about that in the super specialist, you point out the S curve on learning, and you've got the inexperience and engagement into mastery. How do teams, how do leaders have to focus on intellectual capacity and moving people through that inexperience into engagement into mastery?
0: Yeah, my friend Whitney Johnson had sort of taken the S-curve adoption and talked about it as a personal development curve. And I think what people, what is interesting when you think about a leader is that when you get the most learning and growth is in the upswing, right? The rapid adoption. When people get to mastery, it's kind of dangerous in some ways. You might say, oh, this person's just really good at their job. But at that point, they may actually not be learning anymore. And you may not realize that you're kind of at risk. Like if you don't have the next job or the new thing or the next thing for that. And generally, people that like to climb those curves can get a little bored at the top. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind is that sometimes when people actually are struggling and learning and going up the curve, their engagement's highest. When they reach the top, their engagement can start to drop out. That's what her work found.
1: So you give a couple tips as it relates to productivity routines and habits as it relates to things like email and time blocking and morning routines. I I was fascinated as you dove into this, Bob, because a, I was sitting there sort of saying, yeah, there are a couple of things here that I do. And the way he's describing are kind of the way I go about doing them, but talk for a moment about what you do to train people on email management, time blocking of GSD, and then the morning routine.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is part of the thing. This is holistic. These are things that you get better outside of work. You get better inside of work. I used to say it's not like you show up to work disorganized, bad with money, and tired, and you're good of all those things inside work. Now you don't even have to drive to work. You just log on, so you're not going to change personality. So I think we focus on what are really like high performing habits. You know, we've encouraged people to think about and model like good morning routine and what are what are the most productive people do and how do they start their day on on offense and give people the. The space to do that. I think thinking about blocking out time in their day, having get stuff done time. You know, turning off, you know, all the Slack notifications, the email notifications you don't need. It's 18 minutes, I think, when you're distracted from something to get re-engaged with it. So we're trying to have people get better behaviors overall that again will improve their work-based performance, but should also improve their performance outside of it. Goal setting too. Like how do you how do you take a three-year goal and reverse engineer that into annual goals, quarterly goals. And when you see that happen at work and and you also see how you can use that same process personally, I think you start to have better discipline and habits and start to see like, hey, like I'm, I'm telling myself some lies here about the things I'm not getting done about how I'm using my time. So we've always focused on just high performance habits. One of them too, and this gets into physical capacity, I think there's two types of leaders. I've never found as a leader or as a parent that people will do... What I say, they they mostly will do what I do. And Willie, if you go on vacation, you say I'm going on vacation with my family this week. But text me, call me, email me if there's anything that comes up with a client. You know, let me know. That sort of models to everyone that like vacation is not vacation. The inverse of that, which is a partner at First Round Capital, I, I shared this email in a presentation recently. He said, "Look, I'm going on vacation with my family unless it is a dire emergency." Here's the personal phone number that you can get me at, but you shouldn't need to use it. And otherwise you can email my vacation at firstround.com. I think it was. And just the tone that that sets with the team of like, Hey, the boss is like actually checking out. Like that's okay for me to do.
1: I would say one of the things that I find to be amazing is how much email traffic we as leaders generate. So you pull yourself out of the question asking (laughs) and then response driven piece to it. And all of a sudden, your email inbox goes down dramatically. And I'm not saying that leaders shouldn't be there prodding and asking questions and what have you. But I'm always shocked at how much when I do unplug, the volume of email traffic goes down dramatically just because it's so much of it is generated by me. And it is a little bit of a self-reflective moment to just sort of say, if I'm not chewing up their time doing that, maybe they can go back and get stuff done, that GSD time you talk about previously. And I thought it was great in the book, Bob, you put in a, a screenshot of your schedule where you have in there GSD of just sort of like, get off the email, get off of meetings, and just get
0: stuff done. So if we can synchronize those times, so if we can have as a team, hey, from nine to 11, we all have GSD. So we're not bothering each other. We're not interrupting each other. And that's our kind of put our heads down time. And let's do our meetings later in the afternoon. Then that also kind of multiplies that benefit because we're all have it at different times. So I've seen teams kind of make that pack. And then where they're going to hold that space, and and that's the time when it's fine. You turn off your Slack, you turn off your email, and you you work on the the stuff you need to work on.
1: You've mentioned Slack a couple of times. I'm I've been watching the full swing Netflix series on golf, and one of the reviews that they wrote in the Wall Street Journal was that they thought that the town of Jupiter, Florida's business development group came in and sponsored it because every two seconds they're yeah. putting up Jupiter, Florida. I have a feeling you're doing a little bit of <laughs> Slack sponsorship here. Go to Smart Goals, Bob. Because I think a a lot of people forget about what SMART goals are. And you just talked about making goals achievable and some of the other things that are in SMART. Talk for a moment about how important that is because I think a lot of us who are very goal-oriented and try and drive our teams towards something kind of forget how important SMART goals are.
0: Yeah, and SMART's an acronym, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Here would be a not SMART goal. We need to work on leadership. Our leaders need to work on building their bench this quarter. Like that's not a smart goal, right? A smart goal would be every leader on the team this quarter needs to identify two people on their team that are up and coming, that have been identified as top prospects, go through their last couple reports and produce a personal development plan that is shared with them and the leadership development team. At the end of the quarter, now it'll be very clear. So if, if all 15 people on my team do that, I should have 30 reports of, A talent bench. And the first one, I have no idea whether we did it or not did it. So you don't want to ever word a goal that gives you any ambiguity. And and not that you should hit 100% of your goals. You probably want to hit 80% if you're setting them at the right level. But you should not give yourself any ambiguity, whether it was done or not done. It should be clear whether it was done or not done. And I think a lot of the things that we set have a ton of uh, wiggle room. Now, you also can set goals that are outcome oriented or that are input oriented let's just say i want to be improve my fitness i could sign up to a 5k and say i'm going to run the 5k which means i need to run a certain amount to do that or i can say i'm going to run at least four days a week right because what i want to do is i want to be running so there are a bunch of different ways to set up goals i think it's something you actually do often or it's a specific goal you want to get to but most of the goals i've seen are super wishy-washy as to whether they were actually achieved
1: You expand in the intellectual part of the book on reviews and feedback, giving and receiving feedback and how people can be better at both. I was just curious as I was thinking about it, how do you keep that in the intellectual chapter of the book and not the emotional chapter of the book?
0: It's definitely both. I think you need to have the psychological safety to do that, but then the intellectual pieces, there are good ways to do it and there are best practices to, to give and receive. So on the giving feedback side, the most damage I've seen done to people and the least helpful is to tell them that they are something or they aren't something. They are not smart, they are not strategic, they are not good at whatever. That stays with them for years and it doesn't think they are something that they can improve. You know, all feedback should be about the behavior. I talk about sort of situation behavior you know outcome and it should be about what can you do better and how can you get better at it it's very different to tell someone hey and i think a lot of people have had to deal with someone on their team that they felt maybe wasn't strategic enough but to say hey will you're just not strategic you know versus on that presentation yesterday to the client we were presenting a lot of tactics and it was very clear to me that they were looking for strategy and things that looked like a b and c and they didn't seem to be getting it those are completely different approaches and and one doesn't work very well. And the other might actually help the person understand what they can improve for next time.
1: So in that, Bob, you talk about creating a psychologically safe workplace and one that has the norms that allow people to build trust readily. And at Acceleration, one of the exercises that you've done is OLTs, your last talk, Talk for a moment about one last talk and how helpful that's been to
0: creating that emotional safety inside of Acceleration Partners. Let me just say, this is like, this is not where I would start <laughs> for most people. This is not one one level, but we had a while at our annual summit, we had uh, TED Talks, employee TED Talks. Employees would talk about personal things or otherwise or really interesting stories they would tell. One year, we decided to work with a gentleman named Philip McKernan, who had this program around one last talk, which was kind of hey, if you're going to leave the world tomorrow, what's the speech you need to give or the thing that you need to say? And Philip's not the type of person that lets you get away with top three things for a great life. Like these are pretty serious. And so we had employees volunteer to do this more than we thought. They coached them at our annual summit in front of 150 people. They delivered things that they had never shared before kind of in a, maybe in a lot of personal environments and and professional that were deeply personal. And not only was everyone just incredibly, you know, moved by it and sort of discussion with the people around that, it just opened the floodgates of discussion and sharing around people who had worked together forever and didn't really know each other. And we had kind of this crazy day of that. We had to then eventually kind of put the genie back in, in the bottle as I said in the book, but it was just so interesting that because four people were willing to put themselves out there and really kind of model that vulnerability, it just set the tone for the rest of the team.
1: And did you find that the, sort of the rest of the meeting wanted to stay on that level, Bob, in the sense that When I hear you say that and how engaging it was, my tummy tells you the team wanted to sort of stay at that level and potentially not revert back to, if you will, mundane business issues. Did that ever cause kind of a a problem as far as your agenda of people wanting to stay at that personal level and not get back to sort of... Uh, Well, a lot of the things
0: we were doing personally, but it was more like some of the topics started to get into things that people weren't, didn't have the ability to... Handle or manage or give the right answer, you know, where they actually needed to have a discussion with with someone who who knew how to handle that. So the nature of that retreat was actually a lot of personal interactions. So I think people wanted to do that, but we had a bunch of things that we wanted to do, and yeah, eventually we had to try to rein that in a little bit. But it actually carried over for weeks and months and beyond that. The tone of that and just people seeing that they could have that discussion, it was safe. They could talk about the things that were important to them. They were supported. By their colleagues that we just created the space for something like that i think it gave people confidence that they could have those sort of discussions there are a lot of this difficult discussions around stuff that's personal that comes into your life and your schedule and your availability and i think a lot of people are are scared to have those maybe rightfully scared to have those because they see the poor reaction or they were shut down or otherwise
1: were the OLTs done by senior leaders in your organization were they done by if you will anybody who raised their hand to say they wanted to
0: give one. No, they were actually anyone. And they were mostly, I would say, mid-level or, or junior people. That's really interesting. So did you feel any need after that great outpouring, if you will,
1: for your... I mean, one of the things you talk about as it relates to creating a psychologically safe workplace is that leaders need to you know, list their core values, tell their why, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you're very prescriptive as it relates to how do you create that emotionally safe environment as a leader after having such a eye-opening experience with those four people who were kind enough and open enough to share. Did you feel like your senior management team needed to go and do OLTs?
0: (laughs) No, because I think it would have been performative. These were people who had some pretty extraordinary stories that they wanted to share. However, in off sites and things like that, where there's a powerful exercise called a lifeline that people do in teams or otherwise, but we always talk about the leader goes first. They will set the tone for the entire example. The level at which they share their personal lifeline history will, will set the tone for what everyone does. So in general, when we are doing updates, when we're sharing highs and lows, when we're doing that stuff, we do, you know, we talk about a quarterly meeting where I want to talk about something they screwed up. I went first, the leader sets the tone. I think that was sort of a unique case where these were people who had a story they wanted to tell and it was the right type of story for that situation.
1: So if we go to physical for the final piece here, Bob, the first of all you underscore sleep and you give some really good examples of some very yes. successful business people who both didn't sleep enough and might not have been that successful <laughs> and some other people who sleep plenty like Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos who have built massively scaled organizations and two of the most successful business leaders ever who both get eight hours of sleep a night. So you underscore the need for sleep, but you also underscore physical capacity and the brain and the body depending on one another. Talk for a moment about that as it relates to both giving the people at Acceleration the ability to take care of the brain and the body. And then also as it relates to recruiting people into Acceleration who might understand that symbiotic relationship between the brain and the body.
0: Yeah. So look, one basic science thing, and I am not (laughs) a science prolific person by any way, shape or form, but what that, I have my friends who are, have shared with me is that stress is the primitive fight or flight reaction that we have. So it is the bear, right? You see the bear in the woods and you need to be able to run or fight it. And so your heart starts pumping and cortisol comes in and this is, A system that was designed to save your life when we are stressed all the time we are running that system in like a white collar way like it your body feels the same reaction when you have psychological stress about a deadline than it does that a bear you know that might kill you in the woods and it physically makes you unhealthy if you're running it all all the time and so particularly with more people working from home with more hybrid work there is just we've lost the last line between kind of work at home. And and this is where to that email example before, like leaders need to like help people create the space. They need some rest. They need some relaxation. They need to go to bed and not being worrying about an email. Look, we all have emergencies and we all have huge proposals, but that should be the exception, not the rule. Someone once told me their sleep was always ruined recently because there was always an email from their boss at 11 o'clock at night. And they were always looking for the email because it was always there. So it was like this bad Pavlovian cycle that they were in. So I think genuinely, like this is a short term versus long term. You can do this stuff for time. You can run it all day. You can have people available at hours, but they eventually will burn out. I, I would rather have people engaged, working at a high level, getting the rest in any athlete interval training. You need some rest and relaxation, feeling like they have some safe space for their family or otherwise, and then come to work and do a really Good job. So we've even hired people, coaches and stuff who wanted to run triathlons and do stuff. And we're like anyone on your team who's training for a marathon or triathlon, that is not a distraction. They're going to be in like really good physical and mental well-being while they're while they're doing that. It's a healthy thing to do. So it's one thing to to model it or to say it. But then if you don't actually create the space, if you're emailing people all day, if you never let them have time, I mean, we've we've tried to do wellness. Things in work. So, like things that you, you know, we had a wellness competition, you had to take off a half an hour during the workday. We've paid people part of their wellness bonus in the past if they go on vacation to so something you said before and they don't email or check in because a lot of them have designed everything to go through them. So, therefore, they can't take a vacation. So, I believe that explicit or implicit incentive. So, hey, how about we pay you? Because we actually, we really tell, believe you wanted to have vacation. We're going to pay you to stay offline and not talk to anyone during vacation. There's a reason. There's there's some accounting
1: rule that makes people step aside where they can't be in the chain to make sure that there's nothing right,
0: right, that right, right. Yeah.
1: inside of it. And that rule being applied to email and chain of command and being in the middle of everything is a really good one. But Bob, you're also really straightforward. And I mean, really straightforward in saying never put pressure on your employees to be healthy.
0: Yeah. You, you can't tell your employees what to eat. You can't tell them you know, to exercise or stuff, but you can create environments and allow that and you can encourage it and help them have the space to be healthy and whatever that means to them. And look, your job is to not make it worse, I think. I think generally, if you give people the space, if they have time off, if they have flexibility and the things they want to do, they will they will do it. I think one of the biggest benefits of remote work that I've heard is like, I talk about splitting the difference, you know, someone who had a two hour commute before and doesn't like, you know, if they even split the difference with work, got some of that time, and then they were able to actually go to the gym in the morning or do something like that. So if we focus on outcomes and results and not the hours that people were working, it's actually better for both parties. You talk about that of managing outcomes and not hours. And, and in the
1: context of the virtual world, one of the things that I'm seeing a little bit right now is when times were good, yeah. the Fed had flooded the system with lots of the good of old, the good old days. stimulus yeah. checks and stock market valuations were going up. Everyone was like work here work there no big deal now all of a sudden we've got real decisions as it relates to office space and companies supporting yeah. keeping office space in place or getting rid of it and then also as times have gotten tough people sort of saying well when times get tough people need to roll up their sleeves and showing me you're rolling up your sleeves as being in the office have you seen that in your world? And what's your counsel to people as it relates to go ahead and revert back to that old habit, which says that if you're here rolling up your sleeves, you're on my team. And if you're at home zooming in and and being productive, but I can't see it, I'm going to kind of ding your effort. What's your take there? Because I'm I'm feeling a little stress on this one as it relates to in the office versus remote
0: work right well, now. Well, there's context on this. And obviously I've, I'm very centrist on a lot of things. I wrote a book on remote work, but we have a team that gets together a lot and wants to get together a lot. And I I think the way that some of the firms are handling it is not outcome oriented because they're they sound like a strong arm. So if you need everyone in the office so that they're on their own Zoom calls and not talking to each other and working in isolation for the day, like that's a power play. If you have a $10 million pitch with a huge client, and this is where I agree with the investment banks, like you should be in the office for that. You should not be on Zoom. Like that's a huge client. So I think this gets back to the context and the outcome. There are certain outcomes. There are certain things. Like if you're going to have a huge, really important meeting that's going to decide a strategic project or a people decisions or otherwise, like and you say, look, we, we need you to be here for this. Like we need you to be here in the room. But I, to me, it should drive from the context of the work and what needs to be done. I think again, think back to the investment bank. Like, let's say that they're pitching that deal. It really might make sense that everyone is in the office that day. Let's say they're in the last day of that deal and everyone is crunching spreadsheets and on calls. I don't know, do they need to come in to lock themselves in a spreadsheet all day? Like that might not make much sense. So, rather than focus on these sort of rules or generalizations, I think if the leaders can get back to the outcomes and show, "Hey, when people aren't here for this, there is a worse outcome." So, that's why we're asking you to do it. It's not it's not a power play. It's not a preference. Like we lost that deal because our whole sales team was on Zoom and they were taking them out to dinner. You know, there's a real implication there
1: so in these times where, as you started the call, Bob, various industries are under serious pressure as the Fed continues to tighten rates continue to go up. Credit gets scarce. The cost of credit is more and more, et cetera, et cetera. You have a quote in the book, which I love, which is by Larry Bossidy. And it is, there is no way to spend too much time on obtaining and developing the best people. Talk for a moment about where we are in the economic cycle and the need to remain focused on that quote from Bossidy.
0: So, I mean, I'm hoping the Fed takes the off the gas, sometimes into the break, I guess, sometime soon. You know, we seem to be further to the end of that. But until then everyone seems to be playing defense and it's interesting like we work with growth companies they're not necessarily looking to grow they're looking to see if things are are okay this year and 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 you see that everywhere so there won't be headwinds forever like there will be tailwinds again and when things sort of shift i think the companies that are best positioned with the best people who want to be there and grow are going to be really well positioned this is not a time when you want to lose all your best people. I think it's a time when you want to look carefully at what's working and what's not working and be really smart about that. But it's usually the people that sort of get all the squirrels in the winter that seem to do really well when the spring rolls around. And so I think more than ever, keeping your highest performers performing, growing, seeing more opportunity at your company. Look, they can read the world. They may not realize, Hey, I'm not, I'm not asking for a promotion tomorrow, like, or this month that might not be appropriate with what's going on. I can see our volume and we're not transacting or otherwise, but they don't also want to feel like it's a dead end for the next five years. That's not going to keep them super motivated. So there are always ways that cost little or no money to invest in people, focus on learning. If you're the CEO podcast club with the CEO, I I gave an example, like we'll pick an issue, like uh, whether it's a Chat GPT or something like that. We'll pick a couple of podcasts. People listening to them. We'll set up a brainstorm. We'll talk about ideas for how we can, you know, take advantage of that technology. Like that's a totally free thing to do where people on the team get time with the executive team members and they get to share ideas and brainstorm.
1: So, Bob, I know you're headed off to go ski in Utah. So have a great time skiing. Thank Uh, you to those who listen in today. The book is Elevate Your Team. It hit bookshelves today. You can order it on Amazon. I have only touched the surface as it relates to all that is in here. But as I hope you can tell from my questions, there's there's a ton in it that gives not only great theoretical framework to how to build teams and grow teams and and upscale your team members, but then there's also very practical things that you can implement as it relates to training, intellectual capacity, and for instance, the podcast exercises that Bob does with his team on a weekly basis. Congrats for all you've done. I greatly appreciate you taking the time, and it's always fun to spend time with you.
0: Thank you for having me back. Really appreciate it.
1: It's great to see you. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you again next week for another Walker Webcast.